Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My name is Nick Rudy. You might recognize me as the morning news host from WMKT and WMBN. Really excited to have this special edition podcast through WMKT. We'll be interviewing Tristan Cole. We'll be talking about the redistricting maps for the state of Michigan. We'll be talking about Tristan's campaign, and we'll be talking about the Lee Chatfield sexual scandal as well. We really hope you enjoy. Former state representative and candidate for the state Senate's 37th seat, Tristan Cole is joining us in the studio today. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing great. So I want to talk to you about local politics, redistricting, and your campaign, but I want to start with redistricting. Uh, I want to go through each map, update the audience on what's going on, how it impacts them, and then go to you for questions for each map as well. So the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission adopted the Chestnut Congressional, Linden State Senate, and Hickory State House plans. This is the first time an independent commission drew the maps instead of politicians or elected officials for the state of Michigan, that is. So the first one we'll talk about is the Chestnut Michigan Congressional map. Over the state of Michigan, it creates a new 10th district, creates six Republican-leaning seats, four Democrat-leaning seats, three highly competitive seats, and then has eliminated two majority black districts that currently run through Detroit and chips away at Republican advantages baked into the map that are in place today. So what's going on in northern Michigan? Not a whole lot's actually changed. Much of the uh, District 1, this is what is... Northern's Upper Peninsula, Northern Lower Peninsula is represented by Jack Bergman. So I want to uh, ask Tristan, what is the uh, the new map for Senate mean for Northern Michigan? Like I mentioned, there's not a whole lot of changes, but is there any impacts that we're going to be facing because of that? So there's going to be a lot of confusion over these redistricting maps, particularly you brought up the congressional map. It was always confusing to me and how that was named in the lawsuit as being gerrymandered. When you look at that, it was the entire Upper Peninsula and then the majority of the tip of the Lower Peninsula, and then it tilted down the western shoreline. Previous to that, the uh, district tilted down the eastern shoreline, but still contained the entire Upper Peninsula and basically the whole tip of the, uh, the Lower Peninsula map. Not a lot you can do there. These are all based on population. Sure. So the Hickory State map... House state map has an efficiency gap measure of wasted votes, 4.3% favoring Republicans expected to create districts that could produce 57 Democratic seats, 53 Republican seats. After the 2020 election, Michigan House Republicans had a 58-52 majority in the House. So what we're looking at in northern Michigan is Traverse City and Leelanau County are now in the same district, which is the 103rd. The 104th, which used to be Grand Traverse County proper, surrounds Traverse City from Frankfort and Okanama all the way up to Torch Lake. So the 103rd will be fought over by current District 101 incumbent Jack O'Malley and Betsy, Betsy Kofia, the current Grand Traverse County Commissioner. Yeah, and that, that is Onekama. Onekama? Okay, Yes, thank that's you. how that's pronounced. Yeah. Uh, Onekama is a great little community uh, there in uh, western Michigan. I used to deliver uh, dairy products to Onekama. Oh, did you? Nice. Yeah, I'm like, I've lived up in northern Michigan my entire <laughs> life, and I'm fairly confident in a lot of, like, you know, there's, like, the Native American, or there's very yeah. French names, but there's always a couple. Uh, there is a, a very, uh, very unique uh, pronunciations. Uh, you know, but let's dive right into these house maps. And, and in the past... Uh, these maps were decided based on population and U.S. Census boundaries, which is done every 10 years per the Constitution, and we have redistricting. Uh, but in the past, it has been done by the majority party in the state legislature that sets these maps. Correct. Uh, so what I'd like to tell people is you had recourse. If you didn't like the maps, you could mm. vote out or fire the elected officials that drew those maps, and they were also uh, had to be voted on by the legislature and passed. With the new redistricting commission put in place, there is no recourse. How do they select the uh, people on the committee? 
So that's a, uh, that's a great question for the current redistricting commission. I believe that is a process utilizing the governor, utilizing um, the state house, state senate, and a process where they send out applications throughout the state to random people. Oh, wow. It's, it's very random, and there is zero experience in drawing maps or even potentially dealing with politics or the legislature at all. Sure. Which it makes it very difficult to, to build a district based on the guidelines, law that's out there currently, and balance the population thresholds with yeah. the plus or minus deviations. Yeah, that makes sense. And in the past, in the tip of the mitt, for the most part, and the Upper Peninsula, it has uh, they have stuck to, with the house maps, they've stuck to full counties as much as possible. Right. And I had the opportunity to testify two times live in person to the redistricting commission prior to uh, them you know, adopting any of these maps. And... And each time I stress to them that in northern Michigan in particular, we refer to whole counties as a community. Right. And it is not uncommon for an individual to be required to drive 30, 45, even an hour plus for what we would refer to as essential services. So where I live in Antrim County, I'm 50 minutes from Petoskey, I'm 30 minutes from Gaylord, I'm 50 minutes from Traverse City, you know, I'm 30 minutes from Kalkaska. Those, I, I named those off uh, specifically because you have Walmart, you have Meyer, you have major medical facilities, hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, when I, my three daughters were born, I drove my wife to Traverse City. That was an hour because Munson is on the other side of town for us. That is not uncommon in northern Michigan to, to drive those distances. And I, we tried to stress that to the redistricting commission. But to no avail, they adopted maps that broke counties up uh, in, if, with, for the house maps. Right. Well, you said that it makes a lot of sense that when you have your representatives in charge of the house maps, because they have the interest of their communities in mind. And when you just select random people, it's going to be a bunch of competing interests and Mm -hmm. it could be all from a certain location. And so I could see some issues with that. Just to finish up about the uh, the Hickory map. So the 107th covers Emmett, much of Charlevoix County, along with the eastern sections of Mackinac, Chippewa counties across the bridge. That seat's currently held by John DeMoose, uh, who's vacating it to uh, run against Tristan, actually, in the 37th state Senate seat. So a little bit still more about the Hickory map. It's It could flip six seats in favor of Democrats. Is that something that is actually true, or is that a little bit of fear-mongering or a little I, bit of like... Yeah, I, I think it's it's mostly fear-mongering. Look, the voters decide who they elect in these different seats. I do know that with, uh, with it would be the 103rd, which is now a portion of Traverse City and then the county of Leelanau, I do believe that was put in place and and gerrymandered, if you will, to try to create a a second Democrat district in northern Michigan. Currently, uh, there is one in the UP that includes Marquette. That's a very uh, progressive community uh, in in Marquette. So I believe that that was gerrymandered or or predetermined that they would try to put another Democrat district in the strong red area of of the northern lower peninsula and the upper peninsula and it didn't make sense to me anyway or still doesn't make sense uh, to break up grand traverse county which has historically been its own district and and at one time was joined with lila as full counties and joined with kalkaska it's it's easier for continuity for your representative and for constituents to deal with full counties sure uh, it's just just so much simpler now the 104 which was grand traverse county previously uh, the individual running in the 104 now is, is current state representative John Roth. He's going to have parts of six counties 
instead of one county. And if you can visualize these areas, he's going to have parts of Benzie, Manistee, Grand Travers, Wexford, Kalkaska, and Antrim. So that means he's going to go from Banks Township, think the, uh, the village of Atwood on 31, northern part of Antrim County, all the way down to Buckley, and then way west over to Copemish, Onekama, and Frankfurt. That, that is, it's just unnecessary to do that when he could sure. have had the county of Grand Traverse. Right. It's much simpler. <laughs> so I agree with you that northern Michigan, in terms of think of counties as the communities, Maybe Southern Michigan has a different idea. Is that a potential compromise that you could see in the future where so, they leave Northern Michigan largely intact or and then they can do what they have been doing with Southern Michigan? Or is it just going to be a political? Th- th- this is going to be a political nightmare for a long time because it's going to be very difficult to overturn voters, not politicians, that was passed on the ballot in 2018. That's where this redistricting commission was created and came from. The people of Michigan voted for this. Kudos to them for naming it Voters Not Politicians. What a great name for a ballot initiative. Uh, But let's think population, and I share this a lot with folks in northern Michigan. Four counties, Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, and Kent County, run elections in Michigan. So out of 83 counties, four comprise nearly half of Michigan's population, 4.6 million people or so in those four counties. Think about Macomb County in particular. Clinton Township in Macomb County has nearly 100,000 or slightly more than 100,000 people. One township. That's more than or equal to the entire county of Grand Traverse. And and so my uh, previous house district, the 105th district, was Antrim, Charlevoix, Otsego, Mount Marincy, and Oscoda counties. Five counties, one representative. Macomb County enjoys 10 representatives because this is based on population. Sure. So John DeMoose is going to attempt to vacate his seat to run against you. Is there any idea who would run after him? So uh, the, the district that he is vacating uh, is, is going to be a busy primary from what I'm hearing boots on the ground as I work across the district as the 37th seat, Senate seat, encompasses that entire House district. I've, I've heard... Five, six, seven, eight names floated around as potential candidates, and, and we'll see there's an April filing deadline uh, for folks to get in that race or remove themselves from that race. Sure. And so it remains to be seen how many people actually get in. And just because you have 10 candidates does get in, that doesn't mean that you have 10 viable right. candidates that actually have an opportunity to to really pull it off and win that seat. Uh, campaigns uh, cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take an incredible amount of dedication and time uh, to run and to win as it's all about name ID with the primary voters. Sure. So moving to the uh, Linden State Senate map, the map has 14 open seats, six because of term limits, and four districts in which current incumbents are going to be facing each other. For northern Michigan, we have the eastern Chippewa and Mackinac counties all the way down to the west side of northern Michigan, including Leelanau and Grand Traverse counties as a part of the 37th district. Then Wexford, Masaki, Kalkaska, Ostego, and eastern counties in northern Michigan are part of the 36th seat. Michigan Republicans are suing to block the new state house map. I think that's something that's happened this week. Any insight? If, is that going to be successful or is this going to so, get blocked? So, you know, Republicans are suing. I believe there will be multiple lawsuits because of the violation of federal election law in the Detroit region where the redistricting commission may have violated uh, the majority minority district rules. 
Uh, so they really have nothing to do with our rural districts that were drawn, but but that rather that southeastern corner. Now, the question remains is how if those districts are forced to be redrawn, how far does that ripple north to potentially change the districts up here? Sure. Well, and that's not the only lawsuit that's been filed. The uh, there was a couple of black officials that also sued because there was those two. Um, eliminated two majority black districts through Detroit. So right. there's been so, multiple lawsuits from both sides. You think because it's a quote bipartisan, you know, there's problems on both sides that it's probably going to end up being changed? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. We're dealing with with uh, new territory here with this redistricting commission. And we don't know. Now, will the judge say, we're going to throw this all out? I'm going to draw the maps? Will the judge say... Uh, you need to redraw three maps, all the maps, back to the commission. Will the judge say, uh, we're going to stick with the old maps until this is worked out and we get through this year's mm-hmm. election? Is the judge going to say, Madam Secretary of State, you're in charge of drawing the maps? So he has the power to be able to do it himself? Well, this is, this is the question. We don't know. Okay. And so th- this, is, this is part of what's going to come out potentially in this lawsuit. And again, what will the ripple effects be for northern Michigan? Look, the 37th district uh, is, is a beautiful district. It's a phenomenal district. It goes from Leelanau, like you said, all the way to Sault Ste. Marie, eight counties and pretty much whole counties sure. mm-hmm. for the most part, easily defined areas. Now, think about the 36th. Mm-hmm. That is 16 counties. That is a it's massive, very shape too. It's, it's very odd shaped and it's a massive geographical area that winds its way up kind of on an angle from Wexford County up to Presqu'ile and then down the eastern shoreline, kind of in a wedge shape, if you will, to encompass 16 counties. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's just an unbelievably large district. It's, it's larger than most congressional districts. Sure. <laughs> and so it's, 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 it's almost not fair uh, to to the constituents there uh, when they have one state senator for 16 counties. Sure. Is there is there a deadline for when the maps need to be solidified so that the next election can actually go through? So they're, they're solidified now. They are. The okay. vote that they had, as far as I know, they are solidified now uh, pending the litigation that we've mentioned. Okay, so the 60 days has already passed for it needs to sit before... I saw that on... on. Uh, you know, I've, I've just been watching uh, the 37th Senate District. Sure. Uh, that's the one that concerns okay. me. Uh, so I, I don't want to misspeak on, on some of those details of the days. I do know that if they're redrawn, I believe there's a period of time, might be 49 days, 45 days, uh, for comment before a new map would be yeah, adopted. Yeah, I did see that as well. Okay. So so what we run into if we make changes or if the, the uh, judge uh, insists changes be made is that we start running amok with the filing deadline in April mm-hmm. based on these waiting and comment periods. Right. That could be a real problem that the judge will have to take into consideration on where do people run in this year's election. Okay, that makes sense. So Wayne Schmidt, currently the 37th district yes. uh, state senator, he's going to be running for the Grand Traverse County Commissioner. Mm-hmm. And the current he Grand is. Traverse County Commissioner, Betsy Kofia, is going to be running for the 103rd House seat against Jack O'Malley. Yes, the city then, of Traverse City and Leelanau County. Right. And then John DeMoose is running for the 37th seat against you and William Hindle of Charlevoix vacating the seat. Is a political mix-up like this, especially in like a you know, rural area, is that really common or is this something that, it, you know, it, it because it, of the redistricting or is it? 
It, it's a combination of, of all of those things, and uh, primaries are interesting. Uh, that's uh, in northern Michigan in our Republican districts. Primaries are typically how the ultimate elected official is decided in these majority Republican districts. Sure. Even with the redistricting, we still have a majority Republican district in, in rural Michigan. So the primaries are incredibly important. Uh, for folks to pay attention to. It is a little bit unusual for a first-year, first-term rep to jump into a a Senate race like this. It's happened before. Uh, Senator uh, Kurt Vanderwall uh, did that in his first term. Uh, I served in the House uh, with Kurt. The, the difference there would be that Kurt had six years of county commission experience, including chairman experience, uh, to back up that move from, from the House to the Senate. Sure. I want to move in a little couple of questions about like you and your campaign. What is your pitch? Why are you running? What do you seek to get done in state Senate? Sure. So my time in the House, I was privileged and I still say thank you. And I was blessed to serve as the 105th District State Representative. It, it, it takes a period of time to get your legs underneath you to to be fully effective in, in the state house. And I felt fully effective in year three. Not that I couldn't push the red or green button in my first year. I could. Not that I couldn't pass bills. I could. But it takes a period of time of going through the change of leadership, uh, a different speaker, different chairs of committees, and watching a lame duck process play out in order to understand how to fully move legislation. You also watch programs rise, crumble, and be implemented and or, you know, success, find success or ultimately fail. All of that uh, culminates into a very effective representative in and around year three. And then years three, four, and five, you're very effective as a representative. You know how everything works. You know the personalities and you built the relationships. Year six it starts to wind down because the business community, the stakeholder groups are looking to who's the next representative going to be, uh, you know, as you move into that, your final year of your final term and an election year. And so it's, it's, it's really uh, an interesting thing. So I watched all these things happen during my time in the House. And one of the big things, and it sort of gets into the weeds, but it was the administrative rule process. Generally, what causes angst in our communities and with individuals and with businesses, employment, housing, childcare, you name it, are the administrative rules. And that is the departments, the inner workings, the bureaucrats that, that promulgate the rules from what leg- the legislators have passed. It frustrates me to no end, and it's not real sexy to talk about mm-hmm. this process, but I battled it incessantly to, to ease the burden of government on constituents in the 105th. And that's something I am very, very keen in, and fired up to continue working on as the next state senator for the 37th Senate District. Some of the other issues, uh, housing, that's huge. I've got three daughters, 13, 17, and 19. Uh, my 19-year-old will be getting married this year and in September. How, are, how is she going to afford a house? Mm-hmm. We're watching these things happen uh, with the housing market where, where simply put, people cannot find housing. And when they can, it is, it is wildly overpriced and extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. The other, the other issue is, is the childcare issue. And that, that also dovetails with, with the housing issue. H- how do we have working families find childcare and housing is next to impossible. So I worked on those things while I was in the House, and I, I'm seeking to work on those as I run for the state Senate and, and become the next state senator. It's, it's personal. 
and, and I watched it happen and I found that I was very effective as a state representative dealing with these different issues. Sure. So it sounds cliche to say there's more work to be done, right. but the work never stops as an elected official. I also really enjoyed and found myself to be rather good at helping regular everyday folks navigate uh, our, our system of government when it comes to unemployment issues, when it comes to permitting issues from liquor licenses to soil erosion permits at the state level. And because of my diverse background and experiences, the, the bureaucrats couldn't pull anything past me. They couldn't pull the wool over my eyes. They couldn't lie to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a truck driver. I dealt with a lot of MDOT issues, a lot of truck driving issues, transportation issues. And, and I was blessed to chair the transportation committee for two years, my middle term. Uh, so all of those things made me a highly effective legislator. And I look to take that experience to the 37th Senate seat. Absolutely. You touched on a question that I had. What are the uh, the biggest issues facing North Michigan voters? You mentioned child care. You mentioned affordable housing. And I'll just even go further into another question that specifically pertains to affordable housing. Northern Michigan, affordable housing is a huge problem. That's even impacted me. Drives away young professionals in droves. The average age up here in Northern Michigan, I think, is in the 50s. What can you and other elected officials do to fix that? If anything, is it the free market or is it taking power out of the hand of bureaucrats or is it kind of a combination of everything? It, it's a combination of everything and it, and, and it really takes someone with, uh, with relationships. And because of my six years, and I like to say six years plus one, I worked for Senator Wayne Schmidt this past year working on constituent issues and keeping my hand in the district and, and learning the Senate seat even more. It takes someone with the experience and the relationships to continue fighting these uh, battles and fighting for Northern Michigan at the utmost effectiveness. And, and I feel I'm, I'm the right person for that job. There is no silver bullet sure. uh, dealing with these housing issues. We have the issue of short-term rentals uh, that's taking houses out of, the, out of the long-term rental market. We have a pandemic that, is, that has hit the country and, and globally that has caused people to reevaluate where they live. We have connectivity that is improving here in rural Michigan, that's allowing people to work from home, do education from home. Um, That's changing who and how people operate here in Northern Michigan. It comes with, you know, obviously these challenges, but it also comes with a lot of great reward as well. Sure. I was talking to a uh, local uh, builder, owns his own construction company. He mentioned that one of the biggest reasons why housing is not there's not a lot of affordable housing is because the infrastructure, there's a lack of infrastructure. It says that building the actual like facility itself, like the building costs pretty much the exact same, but to get electricity, to get water and plumbing, to even pave the road into, mm-hmm. you know, the development, that's where the heavy costs incur and why build cheaper housing when they can put, you know, a million dollar condominium unit right. and get tenfold returns. Is that, so, How so do elected th- officials go after that specific issue. Okay, so so for example, and folks can follow me along on social media. I I'm a fairly prolific poster on on Facebook, and uh, my daughters have have tried to push me into making sure I'm linked with Instagram and Twitter and all these different things. Not TikTok yet. Uh, not TikTok. <laughs> although my youngest daughter, she says, "Dad, when are you going to start TikTok?" So yeah, soon, feel free soon. to promote yourself by the way on social media. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but but I just shared uh, yesterday, I believe I shared a Bridge Magazine article about housing and about uh, efficiency improvements that are being pushed at the state level here in Michigan that add to the cost of building uh, building homes and, and, and buildings. 
And I'm of the mindset that if, if you want, uh, you know, four inches of insulation, that's great. If you want 40 inches, inches of insulation, that's great too. Uh, it should be personal choice on how efficient you choose to build your home. It makes sense for you to put as much insulation as possible and have as high efficiency as possible because it lowers your long-term heating uh, costs and, and electrical use. I, I, do, I just don't see that it's government's responsibility to force uh, the and mandate through fines, fees, and 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 penalty uh, these type of expenses on homes, such as you know how efficient are your windows. All of those add to, like you stated earlier, the cost of each building sure. just incrementally. And then you have the permits for soil erosion, for land use, for the you know for wells, for driveways. It's just an incredible number of permits to put up a simple house. And you're right. Why wouldn't a builder look to build the uh, uh, the larger, uh, more high end homes and buildings uh, versus a small single family home? Sure. We will be right back for more questions with Tristan Cole, former state representative and candidate for the state senate's 37th seat. Glenn Beck. Remember the people who are behind the Great Reset. The reason why housing is so expensive right now is because they are buying property 50% over the asking price. They're, they're just undercutting everybody else. Everybody else is trying to buy something, and they will come in and say, we'll buy the whole neighborhood for 50% over what you're asking. Um, they know about ownership, so own, own, own. The Glenn Beck Program on WMKT. Hi, it's Nick Rudy from Triple Talk WMKT. Looking for reliable local news? You'll find it here on WMKT. Join me weekday mornings from 6 to noon for sports scores, up-to-date weather forecasts, and local news that matters most for Petoskey, Charlevoix, Traverse City, and all of Northern Michigan. Bringing you the information that matters most. Triple Talk, 1023 and 1033 FM and 1270 AM WMKT. And we are back with former state representative and current candidate for state Senate's 37th district seat, Tristan Cole. So the upcoming primary for the 37th uh, Senate seat, it's you and William Hindle of Charlevoix and John DeMoose, as far as I have researched. Mr. Hindle is a bit of an unknown, but John DeMoose and you, my opinion is that you're very similar in policies, kind of like that Spider-Man meme of each other pointing at each other. What is the separating factor between you two, in your opinion? But that's real easy uh, experience, okay, and and the ability to hit the ground running in a much larger, uh, more significant role in the Michigan State Legislature. Uh, during my six years plus one, uh, so seven years of experience, I've learned and developed those relationships and become highly effective at doing the work that's necessary for our northern communities. And as we spoke earlier in this podcast, it's all about population. Look, we're outnumbered in northern Michigan. There's 38 state senators. We have one and a half for the entire Upper Peninsula. And we have, let's say, two for the majority of the tip of the mitt in the Lower Peninsula. Uh, So, you know, we've got three out of 38. And so if the individual cannot hit the ground running in a a highly effective capacity, uh, that is a disservice uh, to the constituency here in Northern Michigan. Sure. You mentioned earlier that, you know, it took you a couple of years to get 
um, your footing in the in the house. Is there what is your opinion on the two year term limits? Is that is that sure. too is that too is that too few? Is that just right? Um, so you're always thinking about campaigning. It, it is, and so because we have you know a six year maximum, three two year terms in the house, and an eight year maximum in the Senate, or two four year terms. Uh, re-election and campaigns are constant. It it really never stops, although it does subside a little for, for the Senate side because you have a four-year term. You know, it's interesting that in politics, it's one of the only professions, if you will, where experience is not valued. And it's also where they put arbitrary timelines on, say, the state house or the state Senate, and and you're fired, and, you know, even if you're highly effective, uh, due to current law, elections are, are where you're either hired or fired. And I think that's the best way for people to look at this. Now, should there be term limits overall? Sure. I'm, I'm a proponent of term limits. I'm just not sure that three two-year terms and two four-year terms at the state level are necessarily appropriate because it allows the bureaucrats to to watch that ticking time clock over your head of how long you'll be in office and they have the ability to stonewall delay and wait you out and okay. that is very very common sure. so let's say maybe you put just to throw some numbers out there maybe you put 12 16 or 20 years as a combined total serve them any way you wish then it's uh, it would be much harder for a bureaucrat to simply wait you out on an issue if that was the case, especially if you could do two years in the House and, you know, 16 years in the Senate or just any combination that was a, sure. a little bit longer. And that would allow you to be effective for a longer period of time and ultimately do a better job for your constituency. Absolutely. So I do want to move towards a rather unfortunate topic. I don't want your I don't want your uh, opinion directly on the matter, but about the fallout from it. It's the Lee Chatfield story. Um, I'm sure you've had to talk about it before. So again, don't get seek to get your opinion directly on it, but Lee Chatfield was a prominent Northern Michigan politician facing a fairly significant sex scandal. Do you think the scandal will have any impact on the local elections, even though Lee's currently not in office? Uh, of course, this will have an impact. I mean, there's a lot of questions. I served for six years with uh, with Representative Chatfield, and so I do get a lot of questions about it, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Lee and I were from the, the the similar geographical area, and Lee always held me at arm's length, uh, seeing me as a potential future political adversary. So I was never on the inner circle for Rep. Chatfield. That being said, you know I did my job to represent the 105th, and then when I served as Majority Floor Leader, which was a great privilege, elected to that leadership position, the number two position in the House. My, my job was to manage the House floor, manage the agenda, uh, which I did and, and worked with the committee chairs on what legislation was moving through the House, worked with my counterparts on the Democrat side, coordinating speeches and what votes were moving through the floor. So the speaker has the ability to uh, direct what days we have session has the ability to to basically say, I don't want this to move or or I need this to move. And so I did work with him on a professional capacity there, as did my staff. That that's it, it's really complicated right now. I never saw some of the things that, that he's being accused of unnecessarily happening because I was so focused on doing my job. Sure. No, totally. So we've seen countless scandals of this kind and of all kinds, rock the nation and even in local politics. What makes this particularly different in Lee's situation is his strong campaigning on his faith and being the small town hero to become Speaker of the House, as you mentioned. Many people are sick of 
elected officials, politicians getting involved in sex scandals or just other scandals of any kind or being generally morally depraved. How can politicians and political candidates regain the trust of constituents? And even furthermore, so it's kind of everyone needs to work on this. So how can they regain the trust? But how do people better vet candidates so people likely aren't elected in the first place? Yeah. So, so the, the, the number one thing that people can do with their representatives, whether it be, you know, township officials, county, state, or even federal for that matter, although it's much more difficult at the federal level, is to build a personal relationship with your elected official. Make sure that, that, that you watch their campaign as they campaign for the, the position originally. Develop that relationship. Become known as an individual. Uh, get their cell phone number. I'm very free with my cell phone number. And if people have questions for me about anything, another another person, uh, a process, whatever it might be, or where I stand on an issue or might stand on an issue, I just encourage them to reach out to me personally and just ask the question. I always, I always tell people that when you have an emergency is not the best time to be making that first point of contact uh, because sometimes people are just mad and they're mad all the time in their mm-hmm. daily life. Sometimes people are really calm and then they get mad over really horrendous things or, or something that's very important to them. And as an elected official, it's important to know the difference sure. with that. You know, I was recently asked by my pastor from from church on, on what I did to protect myself from the evils uh, that can befall people uh, in elected office. There is a lot of temptation that is put out there. Um, there's there's a lot of money. There's a lot of privilege. There's in some cases a lot of power and I always did my utmost by surrounding myself with other trustworthy, responsible individuals on a very close basis. And so, for example, who I lived with in the apartment down in Lansing, people that would hold me personally accountable for my choices and actions. Uh, I also spoke uh, very intimately with my wife about what was happening uh, with individuals and people and and what was progressing uh, to make sure that she was aware to hold me accountable for what I was doing and how I was operating. And then ultimately I had many, many constituents that cared deeply about what I was involved in and not involved in uh, when it comes to the political atmosphere and the pressures. And so I had a great safety network put in place to protect myself from what can happen when you live inside a bubble. And, and we see that in politics, you get so wrapped up in doing your job that bubble forms and it's important to realize that you are in a bubble and that there is real life um, before and after uh, your time in politics. Absolutely. It might be a bit redundant, but you mentioned, you know, there's like the draw, there's the the power craze that can hit you when you, you know, hit Lansing or you, you hit Washington or something like that. Some people probably that hits them once they step foot in the Capitol. But there are probably some people who already have that desire and that's why they're running. How do uh, citizens, how are they able to sniff that out and... Because most elected officials are very good at talking or very good at saying one thing but meeting another. So how how you you mentioned you know having their you know phone number and talking to them. How would you argue go about though being able to separate you know the the wolves from the uh, the sheep for lack of a better term? Well, uh, for the men out there, I would say listen to your wives, listen to your girlfriends. Um, they have a sense about who people are and how they operate. My wife is generally 100% right uh, when she uh, uh, has concerns about the motives behind individuals. Um, so so surrounding yourself with people that are not, not yes people, very important. And I made sure that like with my staff, for example, I told them, always challenge me 
as I'm, I'm working through issues and making decisions on behalf of the constituency, it, it's not healthy to have that inside your bubble on nothing but, but yes people. Again, it, it's kind of, uh, there's not a, a, a single answer to your question. Sure. It, it's all of the above. What does your elected official uh, do for fun? Uh, what, where, where do they go in public? Are they seen in public with their spouse? Are they seen with their kids? What's their friend circle? It's so complex and, and yet it's so incredibly important for people to pay attention to this. What was their history? What was their background? What do they like to do? And are you seeing any changes once they get elected and then holding them accountable? I take nearly every single phone call that, that comes through my cell phone, whether it's somebody that wants to, to yell at me and is very agitated and angry uh, to the people that are just overly gushing and, and complimentary. Sure. Uh, all of that needs to be taken with a grain of salt as, as an elected official works to uh, make decisions and, and work with the rest of, of, of his or her colleagues, whether it's in the House, whether it's in Congress, or whether it's in the Senate. And so, so there's not a silver bullet. But it comes back to those personal relationships sure. and, and building those over a period of years, which uh, going back to my Senate race, I feel that that people know who I am. Uh, they can look back at the thousands and thousands of votes that I've taken, uh, my hundreds and hundreds of press releases, my thousands and thousands of social media posts. I'm a very transparent person. Uh, my three daughters are, are out in, in public and you can see what they do. Uh, my wife is a very active person as well. And so I try to make sure that we're as transparent as possible. So people know who Tristan Cole is and why they would support him to be the next 37th state Senator. Absolutely. I think one last question, um, Tomorrow is Governor Gretchen Whitmer's State of the State Address. I think her lead topic she's going to push is the, uh, the repeal of the retirement tax. Is there anything else or is that in particular of an interest to you that you're expecting her to talk about? Well, so, so Governor Whitmer has been really, really interesting. And I'll tell you a quick story. So she has, I live in Antrim County and obviously represented it represented Antrim County in the legislature. Uh, Governor Whitmer has a vacation home in Antrim County mm -hmm. over in the Elk Rapids area. Uh, I only met with the governor once, even as majority floor leader, uh, which I found to be odd. She did not want to work with others. She was kind of a go it alone type person in her first two years. Uh, it took me, it took me months to get that one-on-one -on -one meeting in Antrim County. She was 15 minutes late. And then we had about five minutes to talk because obviously uh, at Java Jones in, in Elk Rapids, which is now closed, uh, she was a fairly popular person as governor. So she was sure. talking to uh, constituents, which, which was really good. Uh, that was the one and only time that, that she chose to interact with me as majority floor leader that ultimately chooses the legislation that moved through the House, which I found interesting. I, I would like to see the governor uh, do her state of the state in the House chambers as is tradition. I can understand not having guests, but I think she should do that with the legislature present. Uh, both the Senate and the House over to the, the House floor. So I think that would be something that would show confidence. She's not going to do that. She's going to do this remotely. I believe you'll see possibly something prior to that from the Republicans and then probably uh, following that from the Republicans as far as an address is concerned. I would like to see the governor uh, lay out very clearly how she is going to help lead this state out of this economic crisis um, that, that she mandated down on this state. Uh, without working with the legislature and with the local communities. That broad brush approach that she took early on 
Uh, I'd like to see how she's going to recover from that. Um, I'm sure she'll touch on a lot of different things. You mentioned the pension tax. That's going to be interesting how this is navigated by the legislature in what I call silly season this next year of, of campaigning and elections and what the governor does and how she works with the legislature. Um, she, she's going to throw down some hard hitting things. She's probably going to accuse the Republicans of a few things and then and, and then obviously uh, toot her own horn on some things that she's done. Sure. Has she done everything right? No. Has she done everything wrong? Well, some would say yes, but she she has managed to do a few things that are that are good as well. So sure. hopefully she has a positive and uplifting uh, state of the state. Sure. I'm fairly involved. I like politics, mainly looking at the national level. But in the last like year I, or even during the pandemic, I'd say local politics has been something I've been getting a little bit more in tune with. And I had barely even heard that there was a Republican running for governor. I mean, obviously, there's always the, the incumbent has a little bit more sway. But like James Craig, the former police uh, chief from, from Detroit, He's running, and he's probably the strongest contender at this point. Is there is there anything that well, you so, heard about that? Or? So yes, I, I've I've met Chief Craig. Uh, there's there's in my opinion, and I'm not endorsing any candidates. We're just simply talking about it. There's two top tier Republican candidates. There's Kevin Rinke, okay. and Chief Craig, and and both have their 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 strengths and and weaknesses. But I think we're just beginning to see the you know how they're going to operate their campaign and what their messaging is going to be. I think you'll begin seeing both of them a little more here in rural Michigan. That that's what's important to me is that sure. they understand the dynamics, the challenges uh, for rural Michigan, and that they understand working with the legislature, which is much closer to the folks than than the governor is, and. I have yet to see that from from both those top tier candidates. Now, there's multiple other people that have some wonderful campaign messages uh, out there. We've got Gary Sladano, we've got Tudor Dixon, we've got uh, uh, Captain Mike Brown, and there's there's others. All those are all those folks are are really wonderful people. And I'm not saying I don't even agree with a lot of these folks in the eighty to ninety percent range. You know, sure. uh, nobody ever agrees with anybody a hundred percent. And and they have great platforms. Ultimately, the you know this this uh, primary process is going to is going to flesh this out to one person to go against against Gretchen Whitmer. Sure, I just would encourage all of the candidates to spend time in rural Michigan and build that network and team and relationships, so that should one of them uh, ultimately win the the governorship uh, against Gretchen, uh, they can hit the ground running. Because Lansing Math, I always like to share this with people. Lansing Math, or or what you can refer to as the Lansing zip code, is fifty six. 20 and one that's majority in the house majority in the senate and the governor's signature and if you cannot get those three numbers you ultimately have nothing no matter how right you are how good the policy may be and if you cannot get those three numbers and and the three entities to work together you you have dysfunction and we watched that over the last few years with the legislature and the governor sure i mentioned that that was the last question i do have one more if you have some more time since you're running for the 37th senate seat you will be covering the Mackinac Bridge area as well. Long, long time discussion about the Embridge situation, the, the tunnel. What is your take on that? How do we protect our lakes, but how, but at the same time securing energy for northern Michigan or even a large portion of the state, frankly? So, so I, I absolutely love talking about energy. I served on the Energy Committee uh, while I was in the House. I visited the Enbridge pipeline, both where it, where it enters the Straits and, and exits the Straits in the north and south side multiple times. Uh, and, and we could do an entire podcast on energy and on, on line five. Uh, I'm very supportive of our uh, beautiful peninsula being uh, energy uh, independent, if you will, instead of so entirely dependent 
Uh, we're a destination state. Uh, we're not a pass-through state. And we are surrounded, we're a peninsula, with with so much beautiful, glorious fresh water. I'm an outdoorsman. I love to hunt and fish. I, I live for hunting and fishing. And so I live for a clean environment. At the same time, we must move energy, and pipelines are the safest way, most efficient way to move pipelines. I drove a fuel hauler, a semi-truck that hauled gasoline and diesel across the Mackinac Bridge hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. The, the pipeline uh, is, is very safe. It's extremely overbuilt. I've got a piece of it in my office at home, and I had a piece uh, that was laying on my desk uh, when I was state representative so I could show people what the construction was. But I don't want to argue about that. I'm all for removing the line from the waters of, of Lake Michigan and, in, and putting it in, uh, in a tunnel under, under uh, the lake. Absolutely. That, that will be and is the most environmentally friendly way to do this to ensure that our, you know, the 65% of propane that's used here in northern Michigan uh, can continue to flow. And also two-thirds of the oil produced in Michigan ultimately runs through Line 5, including oil that is produced uh, through enhanced oil recovery processes in Otsego County, injected into the injection uh, site into Line 5 in Lewiston. Sure. Been to all of these locations and have immense amount of experience working with uh, the different companies and our energy network, whether it's uh, you know the production and, and transmission of electricity, whether it's uh, gas and oil production and, and ultimately the transmission through pipelines and on tankers, um, into to how it comes back into Michigan. Our electrical grid is is fragile. Um, it's something that I worry about continuously, um, in that we have consistent baseload power uh, for our residents across this state. And if if we have any glitches in that, it is extremely harmful to our entire state's economy. And and something again, it comes back to the experience. I've been to so many of these locations during my time in the state house. Uh, I wish to continue working on this uh, as the next 37th district state senator. Speaking on like the terms of an environment, and I would love to do a podcast about line five and the environment in the future, but even taking into consideration if the pipe even underground were to burst and having that, you know, percentage of possibility isn't trucking it over the bridge. And you can speak to this perfectly because you were uh, one of the mm-hmm. drivers. Isn't that less environmentally friendly because of how many trucks you'd have? A- to employ? Absolutely. With, without a doubt, I want to say it's, it's in like the mid 2000 range trucks that would be on the road every single day. And I believe that's just one direction. So we know that nationally we have, you know, a million driver shortage. We, right. So even if we could truck it and it was as safe as pipeline, which it's not, uh, we don't have the drivers to drive the trucks necessary to move the product. And isn't it dangerous on the bridge with the high winds? And wouldn't the bridge so infrastructure require a whole lot more maintenance? It's not the high winds. Uh, you know, like I said, I've crossed that bridge hundreds of times uh, with my tanker full and empty. It is, it is simply that is an aging piece of infrastructure that takes an incredible amount of stress from weather and, and the traffic volumes that are on the bridge. I actually, I've, I've toured the bridge multiple times, been up on top of the tower, you know, three or four times down below at the water's edge on the towers. I also got to go on a work platform that when you drive across the bridge, you see them that, that kind of hang over the side. And then I got to go right underneath the mm. green grating that mm. sings yes. when you drive on it. Oh, yeah. And so I'm literally under the grate watching log trucks six inches from the top of my head go over me. And watching the stresses that each individual truck puts on that bridge, it, we simply cannot have that volume of, of vehicles going over the bridge. It, that increase is just unsustainable for that infrastructure. It's not safe. It also, that bridge moves a lot. I don't know if you've ever walked the bridge. I've done that I have many, once. Yeah, many it was, times. It's actually quite interesting. 
Yeah, from when I was a little kid up to just a few years ago, walked it lots of times. Um, right under the towers, there is a joint that moves, and it was neat standing on that with with our with the bridge authority, explaining this and watching that move many inches as those heavy haulers uh, cross that bridge, and so those repeated uh, flexing, that that repeated flexing is would only be compounded mm. uh, if we were to put you know two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand plus additional heavy hauler trucks sure. uh, across that piece of iconic infrastructure here in Michigan. Is it ever going to need work, like significant work in the future? So so the bridge is under continuous maintenance and work. They're replacing components, welding, and and maintaining that, that piece of infrastructure. It's really phenomenal, and that's why I was so blessed to, to serve on the Transportation Committee all three terms and chaired it my middle term to have access and communicate uh, with, with MDOT and the Bridge Authority and the folks that maintain our, uh, our phenomenal pieces of infrastructure across the state. And, and one thing back on pipelines, we have thousands and thousands of miles of, of pipeline underground in this state. And, uh, you know, I'm concerned about all of it. Sure. Uh, and so it's part of a much bigger approach, a bigger picture uh, when it comes to energy transmission and, and ultimately energy storage and where we go in the future uh, to maintain a clean environment, which I'm extremely uh, um, driven to to ensure that we do. Again, I mentioned I, I like to hunt and fish. I want to make sure that the venison that, that my family and I consume is, is clean and pristine. I want to make sure when I'm ice fishing that, that the water is also clean and pure and the... Um, and our tourism, honestly, and, and, too, yeah, and, and so the perch that are that I fillet are are awesome, but our tourism economy, our tourism based economy here in Rome, Michigan, depends on a clean environment. That's why many of us live here, mm-hmm. and and so this is something that's very important to me as uh, the next thirty seventh district state senator. Absolutely. Anything else you would like to say? Uh, promote yourself or. I would just encourage people to reach out to me uh, through social media. Uh, I believe my cell phone is on my my Facebook page. I've got multiple avenues there for people to follow along and encourage their friends to follow along. And when they see activities, coffees, meet and greets, and campaign activities out and about, I would just encourage people to attend. Make it a priority to get to know uh, the folks that represent you at the state level. And then one other component, one of the biggest ways that people can help a candidate is to contribute financially to our campaigns. And we didn't really touch on this, but who votes of, of everybody that votes, uh, Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter. This isn't a partisan thing. 80% vote on name ID alone. And it costs a lot of money to build and earn that name ID with the voters. 20% of the, uh, of the voters out there uh, know exactly why they're going to support a candidate where they stand on an issue and if likely corresponded with them in some capacity, but 80%, the majority do not. And it's very expensive for us as candidates to get our message out. And, and that's why it costs so much to campaign and run elections in the state. Absolutely. Tristan, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Looking forward to the next time.